Well, good morning. And uh, if you have a Bible to hand or a Bible app on your phone, can I just then encourage you to open it up as we begin to Hebrews uh, chapter 5 and verse 11. Not so long ago, there was a story going around about a church which had just appointed a new minister, a new preacher. It was his first Sunday with them and a large congregation had gathered. Uh, they wanted to see how he was going to do uh, and they were eager to hear how good a preacher he really was. And it gets to that point in the service uh, when he gets to his feet and he begins to preach. And the crowd is spellbound. That's really well received. Many come up to him after the service to thank him and to tell him that they thought it was ever such a good sermon and they'd really appreciated it. Now, of course, at this point, we may be starting to wonder whether this story is actually true or whether it's merely apocryphal. But anyway, you can imagine the sense of excitement and anticipation the following week with the expectation of yet another great sermon. What are you going to say this time? And so once again, he gets to his feet and he begins to preach. And he preaches exactly the same sermon that he preached the previous week. This was a little bit disconcerting. There were still a lot of rumblings and mum murmurings around the, the congregation that it was a really good sermon. But they hadn't been expecting to hear exactly the same one again this week. They were expecting something new, something different. Well, this went on for a few weeks and the congregation grew more and more perplexed and not a little unsettled, as you might imagine. So they called the elders and the elders were dispatched to go and speak to this new minister and to find out what was going on. So they arranged to meet with him and they got together uh, and, they, and they said to him, look, we're all agreed that this is a really good sermon. It's, it's outstanding even. Uh, but we're wondering why you keep preaching the same one week after week after week. Do you not have any others? Well, yes, said the preacher. I have many other sermons that I would like to preach, but I'm not going to move on to those until I see that you have begun to put into practice what you should have learned from the first one. There is perhaps something a little bit like this going on in this section of the letter to the Hebrews that we're looking at today. Look, I'm trying to explain something really important to you, but you just don't seem to get it. I know it's not easy to understand, but you're not even listening properly. You just seem to be so dull-witted. It sounds really harsh, doesn't it? But it's here in the text. Let's read it. Chapter 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Perhaps we're tempted to think, uh, well, maybe that was true for the guys this was originally addressed to, but it doesn't really apply to us. So let's just skip over this and get back to the more encouraging parts of the letter. Well, let's resist that temptation, shall we? And perhaps consider that whether this might, after all, have something to say to us. It's not an easy passage that we're looking at today, but it is, I believe, an important one. Before we dive in, let's recap a bit to understand the context and see how we got here. The writer of this letter to the Hebrews began by directing our attention to the God who speaks. We were reminded that in the past God spoke through the prophets, but in this present age he has spoken through his son Jesus. The author goes on to describe how Jesus is exalted over everything and everyone else, higher than angels, worthy of greater honour than Moses, who was considered to be the greatest of the prophets. The one whom God delivered his people out of slavery and gave the law to shape the way they should live. Greater than the high priest who would offer sacrifices on their behalf to atone for their sin. And then last week, we were reminded of how Jesus understands our situation because he has lived a human life. He can deal gently with the wayward and ignorant and his grace is all sufficient. And we also got this briefest of introductions to this slightly strange and shadowy character, Melchizedek. Perhaps our reaction might well be, what's all that about then? Perhaps we're not entirely surprised when the author says, this is hard to explain. Well, we'll have to hold that thought until we return to Melchizedek in two or three weeks time. Perhaps we're thinking that the author isn't exactly dealing gently with the wayward and ignorant here. Well, I hope we'll see as we delve into this that he's really concerned for the present predicament of those to whom he's writing. So concerned that he feels he needs to give them a bit of a wake up call to warn them of the dangers ahead and to encourage them to reorientate themselves in a different direction. So let's take a closer look. Throughout these first few chapters, we've been really encouraged to pay close attention to Jesus, to what he is saying, to what we have heard from him. The implication is that only when we pay the closest attention to the message we have received, will we obey God's word. Obedience demands attentive listening. No fewer than three times the writer has quoted Psalm 95, where it says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, do not shut yourself off from what you are hearing. Our attention is being drawn here to a close correlation between listening and obeying. 
We lose this in English. But in Greek, the original language of this letter, as in Hebrew, the culture of those to whom it was first addressed, the verb to obey is simply an intensified form of the verb to hear. The two words have the same root form, but to obey has been intensified by the addition of a prefix. And so as originally written, the everyday language in this letter carried the insight that obedience begins with careful listening to the voice of the one speaking, in this case, to the voice of God. The repeated quotation from Psalm 95 is intended to give us an additional insight that listening and obedience are related aspects of faith. Refusal to listen and disobedience are related aspects of unbelief. In the passage we read last week, the author has just asserted that Jesus has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And now, just two verses later, he is saying that this particular group of Christians has become dull of hearing, literally sluggish in their ears. They've become slow to learn. And the proximity of these two verses, verse 9 and 11, underlies once again the importance of the correlation between listening and obedience. The author has sharp words to say, but the spirit in which he, they are said is intended to encourage perseverance, to spur his listeners on. And within this passage, within the structure of it, we find both good news and bad news. We start with the bad news, but we'll end with good news. And as we unpack this, it's an opportunity for each of us to evaluate our own personal level of spiritual maturity. And in that regard, I think it's important that the first thing we should note is that this, these remarks, this part of this letter, are primar is primarily addressed to those who have been Christians uh, for some period of time. In verse 12, uh, we read that uh, through, though by this time you ought to be teachers. That is, by now you should know enough and be sufficiently experienced to be teaching or to be discipling others in the Christian faith. Now, that longevity in the Christian faith will probably apply to most of us this morning, but if you are relatively new to the Christian faith or just beginning to consider what it might mean to follow Jesus, then I hope this will be an encouragement to press on once you've become familiar with the basics and discover that there is so much more to learn and experience. So right there is a question. To what extent am I, are you, helping others with their spiritual journey, sharing and passing on what we have heard, what we have learnt and what we have experienced? Or do we find ourselves going over the same basic ground again and again? Do we, as it says in verse 12, need someone to teach us again the basic things 
about God's word. Verse 13 puts it rather more bluntly. You need milk rather than solid food. In other words, you really are still babies. If we try to live on spiritual milk, we will remain as spiritual babies. So what exactly does it mean for us to weed ourselves onto solid food, as it says in verse 14? We find the first clue there. We are to become skilled in the word of righteousness, to have our powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So it's not about increasing our intellectual understanding. It's not just about wrestling with difficult and challenging theological issues, though for some it may well include that. Rather, we need not only to hear what Jesus has to say, but to be obedient to him, to put into practice what we hear and to unpack the full counsel of God, the full word of God. However, the principal aim is not simply to get us to change our behaviour. Nowhere is that stated here. Rather, it is a challenge for us to think harder about our faith, to discover more about what God is like, so that we may come to know him better and become more like Jesus as we seek to live our lives in a way which pleases and honours him, allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. I think the theologian Tom Wright captures this in really quite a succinct way uh, as he writes. What the writer here longs for is that people should become proficient in understanding and using the entire message of God's healing, restoring, saving justice. He wants them to know their way around the whole message of scripture and of the gospel, to be able to handle this message in relation to their own lives, their communities and the wider world, and to see how all the different parts of God's revelation fit together, apply to different situations and have the power to transform lives and situations. He goes on to say, in particular, he wants to see grown-up Christianity, people in communities who have learned in the only way possible how to tell right from wrong. Just as a child learns or ought to learn that some things are good and others bad. And learning this is part of the process of human maturity. So the Christian individual and the Christian community as a whole, in any church or place, should expect to grow up to maturity and discovering the difference between what is appropriate behaviour for a Christian and what is inappropriate. As we continue, uh, these next uh, few verses begin to develop this contrast. Let's read on. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, says the author, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do 
if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So here the writer is developing this contrast between the mature believer and the one who is still a baby. Uh, by giving us a description of things we should leave behind, namely the elementary uh, doctrine about Christ. Now, when used of language, this phrase elementary doctrine refers to the letters of the alphabet as the basic parts of words. So literally, the idea being expressed here is that we need to move beyond our ABC. Learning the alphabet is, of course, foundational. We need to know it, but we shouldn't expect to keep going over it again and again. And the writer here says that he's not going to do that. We learn the alphabet and we learn to read so that we can go on to other things, to enjoy a great novel or to discover and to learn things. Can you imagine going to university and asking the lecturers or tutors if you could simply go over your ABC again. However, before moving on, he does give us this brief checklist there in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, of the Christian ABC, of this basic doctrine. What do we read? Repentance from the dead. Repentance from dead works faith towards God, the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Evidently, these were the foundational elements of the faith taught to the new converts in the early church. This was the milk. And so the question, I guess, for us today is to what extent do we regard these things as foundational for our Christian life and experience. What exactly are dead works and why do we need to repent from them? How central in our lives is the resurrection? When do we think or speak about eternal judgment? But once we've established these foundations, the author is imploring us to move on from this milk to the solid food and strong meat that belong to later stages of growth. And the purpose of nurturing this growth? Well, it's to stimulate a maturity that will be characterised by what the Bible describes as bearing much fruit, honouring and glorifying God our Father, and expressed in our ministry to the world for which he so deeply cares. And this is reflected in the language of the final couple of verses, verses seven and eight of this passage, drawing on an agricultural imagery that Jesus so frequently used in his teaching. 
But here, right in the middle, we hit this really stern warning. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened to be restored again to repentance. Now, Hebrews verse, chapter 6, verses 4 to 6 is one single, one single long and complex sentence. The writer certainly seems to be implying that it is impossible first to become a genuine Christian and then to lose everything after all. Is that indeed so? All we can do in the time available this morning is to know just a few key points. But there'll be some additional uh, material in the small uh, group notes this week for those who want to dig a bit deeper into it. So first point, the writer seems to have in mind people who have belonged to the church, who have taken part in its common life, but who then decide this faith isn't for them and abandon it all. Now, he's quick to go on to say that he doesn't think that those he's addressing fall into that category. And it certainly doesn't mean that it's wrong that we might entertain doubts, that we might struggle with or wrestle with our faith. We all experience that at times. No, this is addressed to those who might deliberately reject what they have known or experienced of Christ and simply walk away. The second point, these are tricky verses and they have been hotly debated by theologians since the early days of the Christian church. There are at least three ways in which scholars have understood these verses, especially when placed alongside passages such as Romans chapters 5 to 8, which are arguably somewhat clearer and certainly more detailed in dealing with these issues. We have to put all of scripture together. And the normal way of holding what is said here together with what Paul and others imply is perhaps that the people described in these verses are people who have become church members and felt the power of the gospel and the life that results from it through sharing the common life of Christian fellowship, but deep down have never really made it their own. And the third point to note is that the writer here does not unpack the wider theological question. He doesn't press the point, and so perhaps we should be careful not to try and squeeze answers from this text to questions he wasn't asking. Rather, let this stand as a sharp and uncomfortable question directly to us. Are we, or are some within our Christian fellowship, in danger of hardening our hearts against God? Are we lining up with those who hold firm to their original faith and hope, or with those who deny that they have anything to do with Jesus? Whatever the answer to the question posed or implied by these verses, it seems to me that the author's fundamental intent is to encourage us not to head in that direction. Don't even go there. And to do that, we need to build on the foundations of our faith and move on to greater maturity. We cannot stand still. If we, 
try simply to tread water, then the current will carry us away from God. We cannot be passive. It requires work and effort. But we're encouraged to do this because that is the way that leads to life, that opens us up to allow God's power to be at work in us. So in summary, we need to hear and to obey, to listen attentively to what God is saying and to put what we hear and learn into practice. We need to ensure that the foundations of our faith are true and strong. But we also need to be moving on from there to deepen our understanding and our faith, to be helping one another to grow and mature as disciples of Jesus and as bearers of his life-changing and life-giving power into the world. Let's pray together. Lord, in the middle of this book that contains so much encouragement, for us. We find ourselves coming face to face with these difficult and challenging words. Let us not close our ears or harden our hearts, but allow you, O oh God our Father, to speak and minister to us by your Spirit, leading us into a deeper place of understanding and relationship with you. May we not be simply passive hearers of your word, but active listeners with intent that leads us into greater obedience, knowing we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And may we encourage one another in this, that it might be to your glory. Amen.